Welcome to the world according to Craig, where I interview and talk to people who have something far more interesting to say than I do. And on today's show, we welcome Raj Singh, CEO of National Lampoon, and a close friend in most days when I'm not making fun of him. So thanks for joining us, Raj. Every day. <laughs> Every day. Valid. Thank you. Um, and I know today we're going to be talking about the intersection of comedy through a multicultural engine in today's landscape, which you're navigating in your current role. Mm -hmm. But before we get there, I would like to help people understand a little bit more about how you got where you are, like how you ended up, because we basically plucked, you know, this Indian kid from white bread, Minnesota, right? Like you grew up in a, in a not diverse community. Sure. Sure. Uh, you want me to go all the way back? Yeah, let's go okay, all the way let's back. Let's do it. I, like you said, I grew up in Minnesota. Uh, my folks immigrated there from India. Okay. They came over for grad school. And, you know, of all places, who would have thunk you go from India to there? But it was uh, there. It provided the most opportunity. And that was, you know, always the sort of motivating factor for that generation. So uh, I was born and raised there. Uh, I grew up there, went to college there, actually. The right. University you of keep Minnesota. saying you're a Michigan fan, but you're actually a gopher. Is that correct? Are other people going to hear this? <laughs> <laughs> My fellow gophers. That's right. That's right. I went to the University of Minnesota. Uh, Were you raised in a traditionally Indian household? Or was it a combination of Western and Eastern traditions? Yeah. I, you know, that's actually a great question. I would say we did our best to assimilate where we thought it made sense. And, you know, as, a, as the first generation born here, we wanted it all to be Western. The whole idea of being Indian and different when you're super young, you don't want that. Right. You want to fit in. And so um, there was a sense of pride in where we came from. But at the same time, you know, even just what we ate for dinner every night, we always wanted pizza or pasta or macaroni or whatever it was and not, you know, naan with, right. you know, whatever. Naan with cheesy yeah. bread or whatever. Exactly. Like every, which yeah. everyone loves. Exactly. So it's fine. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite as multicultural back in the 80s, I guess. That's right. In that vein. So you're growing up in the 80s, you're balancing these traditions but no one in Minnesota was around, was, was like you? Or was there like a community of Indian um, immigrants in Minnesota that you associated with at the time? Or what, or were you the lone brown kid in the white school? They sort of banded together. So, and that was more of, again, a generational thing. So all the, all the people from my father and mother's generation all kind of sort of came together, right? Okay. It was like a magnetic effect because there were only so many in this far-flung place. Uh, where we grew up, in this suburb of Minneapolis, there were none. I mean, it was, we were the only, really any people of color, more or less. I mean, there okay. were a few, you know, here and there, but it was a, yeah, it was, we were a unique flavor. Was there a moment of, yeah, was there a moment where it stood out to you that way? Or did you just, was it just sort of life, right? Like you lived life. I mean, I think people have sort of wildly disparate experiences. Sure. I had my, one of my best friends grew up next door to me and they had a, two, from the outside looking in, it almost seemed like the Brady Bunch, okay. right? And you see that, and you hang out, and you go over there and play, and then you come home. Did you throw a football into somebody's face and, <laughs> and like break a nose? I, I, like we're gonna carry the Brady Bunch all the way. I, his sister may have at some point <laughs> okay. been subject to some injuries, okay. <laughs> sports related. But uh, yeah, it was an easy juxtaposition because you saw this all-American family right next door to us, and then we had our own sort of traditions and practices at home. And all along, as you know, I had I used to wear a turban. I okay. had longer hair. So right, because you're Sikh. That's right. That's right. And so every day when I looked in the mirror and was at school or amongst friends, I knew there was something 
slightly different about me. Well, you were wearing a turban. I'm exactly. guessing it was not common. Yeah, I saw the differences, and I think that's where I drew from to kind of okay. fit in. Because for my folks, it was a first-time thing to come to this new place and raise a family. And you didn't major in film producing, and not that there's a major for that mm-hmm. in most places, and there certainly wasn't then. You didn't major in content producing, but now you're CEO of National Lampoon and you're in charge of resuscitating a franchise, right? Mm -hmm. Probably the most formidable franchise in comedy history. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you just draw that out of a hat? Was this like the sorting hat at Hogwarts? Like like, it was like (laughs) somebody got Gryffindor, somebody got Hufflepuff, you got National Lampoon. Like, is this where the, like, was this where you intended on going? You know, I don't think, I think people... Because you don't write comedy. You're no. not very funny. You don't so. know that, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not public yet, but soon okay. enough. But uh, we, uh, I always love movies. That's where it began. Movies okay. and TV, actually. And I saw everything growing up. And um, I always had an interest in working in the industry, but I didn't really know how to go from Edina, Minnesota to Los Angeles, California, and do it in a smart way. And so... Um, what I did was I took a safe route out of school, which was investment banking and private equity. And what that does on the one hand is actually teach you a lot about just how to look at the world. Right. And so through a monetary lens. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> monetary does come first, but you, you get a great vantage point. And so, um, it, it, it allowed me to form a better understanding of, of business and product and then look to the entertainment business and see how I could potentially you know, segue into it. And, and so you came across the Kmart of entertainment properties, um, something that was once amazing <laughs> sure, and all over the country and saturated it with really high brand recognition, but is, was at that point Kmart, right? Mm-hmm. Like there mm-hmm. were like some people had maybe not managed it well. Correct. And that, and that's where it was great that I had the investing background because, um, had they managed it right and done their job, some studio would own it. Right. And instead, uh, the business faced issues. It floundered. They had liability they had to manage. Someone had to come in after it was cleaned up and kind of really breathe life into it again. And so everything I learned in the investment business actually came into practice with National Lampoon. Okay. And up until that point, we, uh, my experience in the business had been a financing and producing film, mm-hmm. which was a great learning experience for this, but that's one picture at a time. This is, this is what we're talking about you know, a franchise, inst- a, exactly. a brand. Exactly. So how w- there's this sort of a double layer of this, which is like, how do you reboot a franchise and how do you reboot a franchise now? Sure. Right. So you started rebooting it before the current sort of social justice wave. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But you uh, were looking through a multicultural lens. You had like a young group of diverse up and comers who were amazing. And you did the National Lampoon Radio Hour. Mm-hmm. And, and you're looking to all these properties in the future that sort of represent what it stands for. That's right. That's right. So the best way to describe it is the way we looked at it was here you have something that had 40 year, 47 years of life at that point. And when you have that kind of built in awareness and audience, you have some flexibility in terms of what you can do with it because you don't have to go get the audience. They at least there's some audience that exists that grew with the brand. Okay. And when they weren't, when they were dormant, which is when we stepped in, it had probably aged out of a group. So, you know, call it younger millennials and Gen Z isn't so familiar with it. Right. But for what's... Like, I I mean, everybody knows, like, 
some of the the movies, but maybe sure. they've forgotten about all the really crappy parts and they just remember the good ones. And that's it. It's whatever's playing on it, uh, cable or at the time or now streaming. You know, you see all the right. vacation films and whatever it is. Um, so we had something to work with and yet the whole sort of content landscape was shifting and and yet we there was no sort of comedic powerhouse. There were these fiefdoms around all right. of the studios, mostly talent driven. Right. And and this was really a label that was built on breaking talent. Right. I mean, right? it's it's interesting because outside of SNL, which is a whole separate beast and is focused on a, a show, right? Uh, and a personality at the center of it, Lauren. Sure. And, uh, but you have you know, you have Lord and Miller, you have Judd Apatow, all, all the comedy franchises are very person, like person creator based. Mm -hmm. And you're talking mm -hmm. about something that is franchise and brand based mm -hmm. in that vein. And then you're talking about this wave comes, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and in today's environment, and even before the current social justice movement, there, there's a, the, the number of people who've been canceled for something is, 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 very high, shall we say, right? Sure. And for, you know, a tweet, something you tweeted nine years ago that's taken out of context and you find yourself apologizing over and over and then your career's gone, your contract's gone, you're protecting a brand, right? You're not even a personal version of this. How do you handle comedy in today's environment? Like, is it even possible to have comedy in today's environment? If we dug out all the Richard Pryor jokes, right? And started reading them. Sure. Would, <laughs> who gets fired first, right? right, <laughs> like, right. So what do you do? How do you even begin to approach that environment? Yeah, yeah. It's, well, and it's not a question that has a prescribed answer, right? I mean, there's <laughs> Tell just, me more. <laughs> there are, and you know all about this, man, just navigating pitfalls and the definite don'ts, right? So then, again, what is it that you do? Um, going back to one point you made while you were, you know, sort of going through On my that, rant. I'm usually yeah, on no, my rant. Yeah, no, I'm not going to say that. That wasn't a rant. <laughs> You, you brought up the point of talent versus brand. And the reason this brand resonated so much is because the talent cared about the mission at the time. And okay. they, at the end of the day, it's still all talent driven, whether it's a writer or a performer, whatever the project is, film, TV, written word, you know, stand up, it's somebody or somebody's behind it. In okay. this case, they were able to harness all of this talent in one room and get them to do all these things before they became individual personalities. And then okay. the brand sort of, rode that wave and was able to attract talent, right, on a regular basis and make that the magnet. Early on, they were able to establish, and it becomes relevant for, for the question you posed, that there were no boundaries. And it was... Okay, that seems know, problematic. It, it, was, <laughs> it was jarring. It was anti-establishment. It was irreverent. It was all the adjectives. That seems fine for 1960s? <laughs> 70. Yeah, starting in 70. Okay, yeah. 1970. So mm -hmm. that seems fine then, less fine in 2020, unless you're Donald That's Trump. That's right. That's right. And where we know we can, and this is a purely business thing, where you know you can make money is in film, is in television, and a few other areas within media that we focus on, right? right? And even those sandboxes have parameters around them, right? It can only have so much of a rating. It can only draw this sort of talent if the script reads a certain okay. way, right? So those are our built-in safeguards within that. Um, it, what we want to see is fresh, different perspective, okay. et cetera. And so if there's edge to it, if there's subversion, if there's... Um, you know, if there's something that's controversial, we actually haven't, we, we've had maybe one screenplay so far where we looked at it and said, wow, this is really controversial, but 
we're really interested in it. We never actually ended up landing it. It became right. competitive, but that actually was indicative because that okay. happened during cancel culture. Okay. So to me, that suggests that if, if the, in that case of film, if the writing is tremendous, right? If it's got the entertainment, it has the satire, right. which is really important to us, satirizing what's going on. And cancel culture actually gives us a way to kind of make this almost meta, where we can take it one level further okay. and cause a reason to sort of... So you're going to cancel cancel culture. That's it. You could do that, right? Okay. I'm not saying that's our mission. But <laughs> you could It could that. be somebody's mission. It I mean, could be. listen, I want people to be respectful of each other and I want there to be a respect out in the <clears> world <throat> and there to be laughter and comedy. But at the same time, I would also like people to calm the fuck down, mm -hmm. right? Like, and so, you know, there's the vein of like, how do you balance that, right? So sure. something can be subversive, but what happens if something is subversive and it's out there and, you know, the audiences receive it and they love it. And there's a small group of individuals or a large group of individuals. Let's mm -hmm. say you have, you know, 10 million people love the, a new movie or a right. new screenplay. Right. And a million people are offended by it. Like, do you make it? And if you do make it, what do you say to those million people who are offended by it? Or do you say like, this is comedy, right? Mm -hmm. Like this mm -hmm. is like this, this isn't intentional harm. Like where's it gets very messy. And I think the world is intentionally, it, sometimes it's okay to be messy, but mm. like, how do you navigate your way out of that? Right. Well, it, it even goes one step further, which is what we're making causes a reaction one way or another. That wasn't funny. It was funny. And even that's subjective, right? Okay. And, and the, go, the same goes for any anything. It could be drama. It could be thriller. It could be horror, whatever it is. Some folks are going to find it good. Some are going to find it bad. Now, if you're asking if someone, if, if a group or a cohort finds something offensive right and they just think it should be canceled okay that's, that's one thing i think we haven't come across anything where i look at it and i say this actually has risk of that now if it did happen well we've all the safeguards are in place there's usually a studio partner or network right, right that's green lighting there's a, there's us signing off talent signing off etc so it's not like we have a unilateral decision right it, we're not one sole stand-up comedian going up there right. and making that joke i've been in the room and nothing offends me i'm just gonna say it we, especially I, I know i've tried but it doesn't it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't personal work. experience but i've been at the store and watched name you know comics come up and say things where the whole audience is like did he just say that and i feel it the do they recover Oh, of course. They know they're going there. They know they're going to get that reaction. And then they just go further, right, often, and then come back out. And then it feels like no one could uh, openly, you know, say consciously that this is how they enjoy it. But it's like going on that roller coaster where you go up and you go down and you go up and you kind of want it, but you don't want to acknowledge okay. that you want it because it's you go there for entertainment. If that entertainment can also push you and pull you in different directions, it's more of a ride. It doesn't mean, you know, just offend the shit out of people but well it's almost like watching a, it happen and feeling the goosebumps and seeing everyone around you just do that <gasps> he just said that true um yeah most people when i walk into a room it's the, that chill it's the game of thrones <laughs> theme that plays but i think it's a different impact it's not That's it's not quite right. comedy um but you know i think there's something to be said for that which is you know when people are in their personal social circles they get okay with their friends saying certain things and if they're not they they address it hopefully mm. right like that kind of offended me for this reason you didn't know this about me but xyz sure. but in the vast majority of situations i think people realize that their friends are coming from a 
good place, a, a trusted place. It's almost like when you go, is it, this, is it the same thing? You go to the comedy store and you watch someone and you know this comic is up there trying to tell a joke and they're coming from a place of like, they're not trying to be offensive for offensive sake, mm. right? Like I often joke the sign of a bad screenwriter is how many fucks they put into a, a movie because they mm. just put them all over the place because it's they think it's being sure. crazy, but the reality is restraint can mm. be the can be the, the sign of creativity, right? Right. So you know this comedian's not up there just to offend. They're there because this is their career, this is their job, but this is this is part of that, right? Like right. is that is it the same trust relationship? Is that like, do you go there and is that why it works? Because people trust each other or is, is it just an expectation? I know I'm going to go to the comedy store and somebody's going to offend me and I'm going to laugh, right? right? And right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it. Well, I think that format kind of stands on its own because stand-up comics are more or less observers, right? Okay. They're almost, you could say philosophers, right? Modern day. They look at I don't know that I'm going to compare uh, Chris it's, Delia it's, to, to I completely I, I understand what you're saying, but if you if you take an anecdote from your life and it could be seen, it could seem so mundane, and you can turn it into a 15 minute bit or a podcast, and, just to be clear, exactly half hour <laughs> podcast, and and actually have observations, lessons learned, you know, flipping the way expectation is is perceived and experienced. There's something to be said about that, and it's all usually rooted in. Truth, because okay. the better jokes are true, right? So uh, th that almost, to me, stands on its own because you're paying for that. You're putting the money up. You're going to go have a couple of drinks, watch the show, okay. maybe get offended, and then walk out and, oh, I can't believe he said that, but how crazy was it, right? And then you move on. So how do you go translate ahead. that into a movie, right? Like, can you recreate that experience? Can a movie be... <clears throat> offensive and funny in today's day and age, right? Um, I mean, there are lots of jokes that we can crack that are going to be about your crazy Uncle Jim mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. um, your wild Aunt Maude, right? Like there's sure. lots of non, there's lots of areas to play where there's less risk to offend. Sure. It's if you start cracking jokes about your crazy Uncle Jim being from the West Bank and your crazy Aunt Maude being from Jerusalem and, and interplay, like things start to get hairy at that mm -hmm. point, right? Mm -hmm. So can you create that? Is it like, can you create a movie with like outside of the, the, the safe realm and in that environment, do you have the same thing? People are paying the 10 bucks going into a movie, expecting this to be a journey. I mean, Borat is, is not offensive to the people who's watching it, but it's offensive to the people who got caught. I would That's suppose. Right. That's right. And so I think oftentimes what you see in comedy is what's offensive is just going too far in terms of how gratuitous is it? How far okay. can it get? Right. And it's sort of surface level. What we look for, and I frankly respect creatively is when you can layer the story, right. With arc and narrative and character depth that, that ends in world creation where you can actually go there, but it allows for it because you're not making it just to be offensive. You're making it to call out a situation just like a comic does. So it's okay. almost like doing it on a meta level. And those are really hard to come by the writers that can actually create that experience. And so that's often the sort of the distinction between what we think can work in satire and what doesn't, because if it's known that it's going to be parasite, for example, that's satire, right? I mean, it's a tragic comedy, right. it's satirical, but it's also a thriller. It has Everyone all loved of it. it. I couldn't get through it. I just have to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, you He's know, I watched, Matt, to, I watched Madam Secretary on network television and then parasite. I'm just like, but and I mean, I get it. Do you yes. understand, right? Yes. And, and he could. I watched Snowpiercer, which was a much the his yes. a, his earlier film, exactly which was in the same vein. And even those films are those are films that, if we had 
our druthers would be National Lampoon films. Bong Joon-ho, the way he looked, director Bong, the way he looks at the world, the way he's able to comment on it, even though it's a very, <laughs> no, I know, but even though- I'm like, a, I'm like fascinated yeah, by this yeah, business approach. Yeah. I'm like, okay. But even though it's, it's, it's no, if you actually uh, contrast that to Vacation, as crazy as it might sound on the surface, how is it any different? Vacation is just, it's so much more sort of fastball in American cinema, but it satirizes family dynamics. It's just that it doesn't satirize rich versus poor in this one house and all these terrible things happen, right? right. So, okay, so do, do you see what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. and so I'm gonna take that one step further, which mm. is, um, there's a phrase, all politics are local, right? Mm. Which is, you know, I, you can talk about um, tax breaks and macroeconomics and foreign policy, but I want to know if my roads are paved, my schools are have ceilings that are falling in. And I almost wonder if all comedy isn't local as well, right? Which is when you talk about this family dynamic, right? You talk about National Lampoon and the and the the family of it all. You talk about um, the Parasite family. Even you talk about world building. You're essentially creating a world. You know, think about all the jokes that you tell among your family when you crack each other up. Like when we play game nights and there's just a joke after joke after joke. Sure. If somebody walked into the middle of that, they're not going to get it, right? Because right. they didn't, they're entering the world with like a hard left turn. Sure. Right? It's like, whoa, it's like a smash in the face. But if you're part of it, the number of times that you could just find yourselves rolling on the, on the floor with laughter with your family, with friends in silly, stupid moments, mm. I think it's the whole premise of the heads up game, right? Mm -hmm. Is that like, it's supposed to create these silly, stupid moments that you get as a family. And some things are like, would out of context be crazy while defensive, but there's that feeling of the family dynamic. You've built a world. Is comedy just a reflection of 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 home life? Is that is that how we look at this in in the world? Right, like the Richard Pryor jokes, um, the Mrs. Maisel of it all. Their observations of life, mm -hmm. their observations of their lives. They've taken their lives. They've they they've made it into something dynamic, and now it's really about my relationship to my own home life, my sure, own world. Sure. Sure. Is that like is that a proper way to look at it? Did I just solve everything? Uh, you you may have. <laughs> uh, <and laughs> this should be in the instruction manuals for <laughs> up and comers. But uh, it's it uh, to me comedy all just roots back to, and I said this just now. I think it roots back to truth, and it just depends on what truth are you telling? Are you telling? Are you Charlie Chaplin who you know did all these silent films and there's so much physical humor, which in and of itself is impressive, but that was very much commentary on society, right? I mean, right. all of that, if you really examine those pictures, you don't even have to, you just have to watch them. There's funny for funny's sake, and there's funny, there's ongoing funny, like okay. you're talking about, like the world building and walking into, being part of a dynamic where you can actually, you know, share in this. I think that's what makes, it's, you're almost asking the question, what makes a funny movie rewatchable, right? right. And that's the common thread, in my opinion. What makes it rewatchable is something that's, well, one, it's relatable. Two, you can get dropped into the world. Three, it's not surface level jokes, right? You can actually, mm -hmm. it resonates, right. right, at a character level. And and no matter how absurd it can get, um, you're still in it because okay. you feel like you're a part of it, right? So it's, it's escapism, you know, to the next level. It's not going and seeing, you know, explosions and... So are all, so all of your are all of your friends from Minneapolis and your parents are they going to all 
watch the the next national lampoon they're going to find it funny they, it's better. Be, they don't have a choice <laughs> they're going to be source of inspiration for the characters anyway so yeah that's well, uh, i'm glad you have to tackle them before you tackle your current friend group because mm -hmm. i'm going to need some permission slips uh if i'm included as the inspiration for any character you need to sign away your uh, some rights here for me <laughs> yeah um maybe not <laughs> um well, I think it's a fascinating topic, right? Like, you know, we look at the world now and it can seem so crazy, it can seem so difficult. But I think what you've been talking about is it's actually not as complex. It's not as complicated as we would make it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yes, there's a cancel culture out there, but it's not about um, that cancel culture. It's about just this this story building, world creating um, mode of of a personalized story that can entertain people. Mm -hmm. And if you come at it with the right intention um, and you're not doing it maliciously, there's a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. There's a little bit of a contextual situation. Sure. And maybe Richard Pryor actually could make it today or, or George Burns. I don't, I don't know. It depends on where they're, where they're going in that vein. But I'd like to think that we like, we recognize the Joan Rivers, the comedic geniuses of the past and say, okay, we could take an inspiration from them. We wouldn't just automatically rip them down. Sure. Well, there's nothing, you know, to, to use that example, what Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle are not saying anything less edgy or controversial than Richard was. It was just that he was there early and he kind of laid the groundwork for, okay. That, that's what I would observe. And, um, but yet those guys are already established comics right? They're already grownups. They've been stars for decades. So it would be interesting to see that next Richard Pryor. I don't actually know who that is. I'm sure he or she is out there, but um, it's almost analogous to are, are there are movie stars dead, right? And in, in a different way, right. can there be another movie star? Well, yeah. I almost wonder if uh, you could stage a publicity stunt where you uh, have someone read and do a Richard Pryor show to have an audience that doesn't know Richard Pryor and see how they react, right? right. And, and and film and tape that. If you take that idea, I'm going to require some payment. But it's, it's all yours. Well, I, I saw Jamie Foxx, I think it was Jamie Foxx, do an interview once where he said he was testing material. And I think this was recent. They, These guys are, these men and women are, are very cognizant of who their audience is. Mm -hmm. And he, he's, he talked about how he changes the routine depending on where he is in the country because you want your jokes to, to, to land and you want to minimize, you know, who you're offending. So no yeah. Trump jokes in rural Tennessee. Understood. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I don't know if he explicitly said that, but he'd <laughs> he, he probably agree. Um, I think, I mean, you, you know uh, public sentiment so well. You know this just demographics and and uh and publicity and marketing so well there's no public meter for things that are subjective so if 10 percent of people thought something was offensive does that make it offensive or is if it's but on the other hand if 60 percent of people thought something was immoral and offensive then then is it right and so is there there's where, where do you draw the line and well there used say, to be yeah. the codes right and the codes are different what what qualified as pg in 1960 doesn't or as our rating in 1960 is pg rating today sure like as society and mores have evolved right right exactly so it's um it certainly evolves with the times and then the times evolve with it and it and i think they just push each other um what lands what used to land then maybe doesn't land now and like you said is it local just like the news right um I've actually found it to be more universal than I thought because when we when we were taking the time to look at the brand, kick the tires, one of the, the core tenets we'd always hear from folks is, well, it doesn't travel. Comedy doesn't travel. 
and um, take a Pixar film, for example, you would think that humor, it, those are, I mean, those are adult films essentially, right? The way they're written yeah. and layered. They, the, the jokes in those films land just like they do here overseas. Now, we're still talking about animation and children, but there's something to be said about the fact that the understanding the timing, understanding the beats and watching audiences laugh in one far flung place like India, right. with kids, you know, that have don't even know English versus here. That actually says something about yeah. parents about, will always fight with their children. They'll always be <laughs> crazy aunts and uncles. Exactly. They'll always be some dispute between neighbors mm -hmm. and it's just the layers that you put on front on, on it. Exactly. Exactly. So to me, it's more about relatability. Is there something in this film or story that can be sort of is, 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 can be imprinted or translated wherever transplanted, wherever the, the, you know, it's being watched. Got right? it. So <laughs> best intentions, relatability, when in doubt, make fun of your friends, your aunts and your uncle and do it at home and don't record it. Yeah. Um, so I, all good advice. Um, Somebody I, once told me it was, I've met this venture capitalist and he once told me 95% people are 95% the same. And we have all these squabbles over that 5% where we're different. And it's very much, you know, sort of analogous here. Well, right? I love that. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to the to National Lampoon reminding us of the 95% and not the 5%. <laughs> so uh, thank you for coming on today and having a, an honest conversation about something that I literally am fascinated about this intersection of how the things we've always known, if they can still exist, if they, it, how the world changes, how society changes. And so I'm so grateful to you for sharing what you're doing with National Lampoon for your, from your perspective growing up uh, the way you did and how that informs today and your, the culture and cheers to universality of comedy. And mm -hmm. I'll be first in line for the, for the next National Lampoon film. So I really appreciate it. You're paying full price, by the way. I mean, we'll <laughs> talk about that later. Right. Thanks so much to Raj for joining us to talk about the intersection of comedy and multiculturalism and what's possible in today's world. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The World According to Craig. Tune in again for The World According to Craig with someone else who's smarter, better, brighter, and prettier than I am. Thanks for tuning in to The World According to Craig. The inside secret is not actually according to me. It's according to some of the most interesting people I know and their opinions on the things that affect us most. Together, we're just trying to make sense of the world, and I hope you'll join us every week.